Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. Unless you're a certain movie archaeologist, training as an ancient historian generally doesn't involve travel tips for conflict zones. But when Professor Eleanor Robson of UCL's Department of History was asked to go to northern Iraq in 2015, she was determined to answer her friends' and colleagues' pleas for help. Daesh, or ISIS, had just released dramatic footage of them blowing up 3,000 years of buildings and statues at the ruins of Nimrud, once the glittering centre of the mighty Assyrian Empire. Although the war was still going on around Mosul, Iraqi heritage workers were scrambling to protect what was left. Eleanor had been looking at where previous scholars, tourists, looters and empires had taken items from Nimrud and scattered them all over the world. She had the only map of the shattered pieces of Nimrud. Could she help her friends make sense of the destruction? Louise Haxthausen was the director of UNESCO in Iraq at the time, and with UN support, together the two women set out to find their colleagues and what was left of the ruins. Back in the UK, a BBC producer called Mariam Marouf had also seen those pictures, and wanted to tell the listeners of the World Service the story of what they meant to Iraqis. Her series, The Museum of Lost Objects, would take her in Louise and Eleanor's footsteps and pose difficult questions about documenting old buildings when human lives are being lost. I spoke with them about how destruction, oppression and resistance have always been a part of what built Nimrud and how modern societies suffer when our histories are erased. Welcome, Eleanor, Mariam and Louise. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. I wanted to start with asking each of you about those now notorious but iconic images back in 2015 about the destruction of these statues and buildings as that was coming out of Nimrud and how each of you felt when you saw that. How did you respond to that? What went through your heads? Um, I guess from my perspective, it was, there were two things. Well, first of all, because at the time I was um, partly working in a newsroom. So the first response is, and there is a sort of part of you that does get desensitised to some of these images because there were more horrific images of people being destroyed as well, particularly that year. I remember, you know, being shocked, but then also thinking, um, I don't know what this place is, and you you have a kind of disconnect from it. You know that it's something important, but there's a disconnect. So, so from a news level, um, you immediately um, kind of strip away any emotion you might feel and think about the how you're going to cover the story and then i suppose the other response that then comes in is when you start to learn about the place then it's just absolute kind of horror sadness and um and kind of you know you you worry also about who were the people who were there who got caught up in that so i suppose it's it's on kind of those levels for me louise how about you Yes, I think for me it was similar in a way, the um, you know, feeling of horror, really. Also a feeling of disbelief that something like that could, could actually happen uh, 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 in Iraq. I mean, uh, disbelief and, and profound 
absence of understanding uh, of uh, why Daesh could uh, enter into this really horrific destructions of, of, of large-scale destructions of, of cultural heritage. But then I think also <laughs> a feeling of, um, of, of support because um, of what uh, we witnessed at, at, uh, at UNESCO in terms of global outcry and, and, and solidarity uh, uh, with uh, uh, the people of Iraq who were seeing basically their, their precious cultural heritage being destroyed, a part of their identity being destroyed. Uh, uh, and really that sense of solidarity of people coming together uh, uh, and trying to, to do what could be done at that stage to uh, uh, safeguard the heritage and, and already begin to think of how, how to, to protect it, reconstruct uh, in the future. Eleanor. Oh gosh, yes, I'm having flashbacks as you talk. So I first visited Nimrud in 2001, long, long time ago, shown around by its excavator, um, Muzahim Mahmoud Hussein, whom uh, both uh, Mariam and uh, Louise have met. And then I had been working on a research project, initially just on its ancient history. I've been leading a research project since 2007, and that had morphed into a project on the history of its history and how we had in modernity had come to come to know it so i've been thinking a lot about it and was act and actively been working on it for a long time and at the same time since um the summer of uh, 2014 with um daesh's invasion of mosul in the area had lost contact with all my uh, friends and colleagues in mosul including Muzahim. and we but yet we've been hearing rumors things were creeping out through social media of various sorts of cultural heritage destruction in the city and around. Um, and there had been rumours already that terrible damage had been done in Nimrud. So when the videos finally broke, I can remember really clearly, I was sitting at the same desk I'm sitting at now. It was in the middle of a, a, a working day and I was about to run off to teach. I'm trying to assimilate all of this, worrying desperately about Muzahim and other colleagues. And also just my heart thinking and thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be so much sort of work um, emerging from uh, all of this and, and thinking about the inevitable um, ways in which the international media were going to deal with this. Trying to descend my own personal feelings about the site, which I'm which I'm very, very fond, but trying to think more about, yeah, the people whose life's work had been destroyed, both in Iraq and in the UK and thinking about how I could best represent their needs and voices and uh, what was going to come next. And we'll, we'll talk about what, what did come next in just a moment. But before we go on to that, Eleanor, could you explain why you shifted from looking at the, the, the ancient history of the site, perhaps, to the history of the history? What does that even mean for our listeners? That's a really good question. So I... I'm an ancient historian by training, and I'm really interested in the way people produced uh, scientific and intellectual knowledge in the past, and how it was used politically and socially. And Nimrud was a great place for that, because there was, had been a, an archaeological excavation in the 1940s to 60s, carried out by a British team that had unearthed a whole library of clay tablets, 
and part of the project I've been working on was originally trying to publish that and make sense of that. But then the more I realised how difficult it was because there was the British excavation in the 40s to 60s on top of a, a much earlier um, archaeological exploration in the um, mid to late 19th century and all sorts of informal engagements of the site that had dispersed archaeological artefacts all over the place. And then there had been uh, Iraqi uh, reconstructions of the site to make it usable as a, as a tourist site. And then a couple of other um, uh, Polish and Italian projects since then. So there was this just collecting the evidence I needed to, to, to research knowledge in the ancient past required me to think about how how artifacts were identified, collected, dispersed from the site all over the world and how knowledge of the site therefore was really dispersed and fragmented as a result. So the project was originally just to try and bring all of this back together virtually, you can't physically reassemble the whole in order to make sense of it. So then I had to start really writing the, the history of knowledge about the site and trying to understand it. So this was all going on perfectly happily. We started to do this history of the uh, the history of the site in 2011, long before the invasion of Daesh. Um, so it was all ticking along quite happily, and we were thinking about uh, how to help little museums in the UK who had artifacts from Nimrud make better sense of them without um, specialist curators. Um, and that was going to be the main outcome of the project. And then ISIS happened and the whole thing had to change. We were nearly at the end of the project at that point, but suddenly having to kind of radically rethink what the function of the project was. First of all, I had to add an extra chapter to the kind of the history of the history of the site because all of this <laughs> stuff was happening right now. But thinking about how I could use all this knowledge to help people understand what they were seeing on the site, both as journalists when they were first visiting, um, but then, uh, yes, sort of people like um, Mariam who were making um, programs about it a bit later, and of course, experts like Louise who were on the ground try, trying to help um, archaeologists on the ground think about what happened next. Mm. And so, Louise, and Eleanor, what did the next steps, what did that help, that support that you wanted to provide end up looking like? The first priority was really uh, to get a sense of um, the magnitude of the damage. Uh, and, and for that it was absolutely key to have the sort of, of, of knowledge uh, about the site uh, that Eleanor with her program uh, uh, had collected and and therefore to begin to plan uh, on the future uh, you know what what would you like to do would you like to 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 reconstruct would you like to uh, just safeguard what can be safeguarded to preserve uh, uh, to have all these elements all these options open that of course were not decisions for, for UNESCO to make, but really for the Iraqi authorities, because it's their heritage. <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, the Iraqi authorities, but also the Iraqi people's heritage. And in, in this moment where, uh, where there is such a strong and obvious disruption in the transmission of heritage, you can say, to the future generation, to the young generations, 
uh, for them that there is somewhere available this knowledge so that it can also be used in uh, 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 you know in, in teaching formal and informal in learning uh, for for the younger generations for them to to gain that gain back uh, uh, that ownership uh, of of uh, of their own culture because of course Daesh were really playing on that and they were really manipulating people uh, and kind of rewriting history. Uh, they wanted, in fact, not only to rewrite, but to erase uh, that part of the ancient history of, of, uh, of Iraq, uh, because it was not aligned, so to say, with, with, with their ide ideology. And, and uh, so basically to cut uh, uh, the Iraqis uh, from, from their own history. Eleanor, how did you go about reaching out to your colleagues in Iraq? Well, what happened, in fact, was they reached out to me, uh, my dear friend and colleague, Leila Saleh, who um, had been put in charge of um, doing uh, uh, site reports on the heritage that had been liberated from uh, Daesh. She got in touch with me, this lovely selfie photo of her and Mazahim. Um, Mazahim is very old now, but it was just so ha I was just so delighted to see that he was okay. Leila had been in Erbil, and so I knew she was all right. And then she contacted me in the spring to ask if I would come come out and help her look at uh, two Assyrian sites, uh, Nebuunus in uh, Nineveh and, and Nimrud. And Louise, you'll remember this well. You remember me <laughs> contacting you and, and working out how we could how we could do this, and yeah, and how we could persuade my my dearly beloved other half that it was uh, it was safe <laughs> and there was nothing to worry about um, we assembled in Erbil and uh, thanks to Louise and uh, UNESCO and my uh, personal security stuff um, and we met Layla and then drove first to uh, to Nebi Yunus and then Mizahim bless him was so seriously traumatized still by the by the occupation that he really wasn't ready to set foot on site yet and I think, in fact, it was Mariam. You were the first to take him there, weren't you? After the Sinimrud, yeah. yeah. I actually, I, it, yeah, it just occurred to me. I think that was the first time, possibly, that he went there. Yeah, because yeah. I can remember telling to you, you know, I didn't think he'd be ready, but now you gave him the courage to do that. I drove with Layla from Erbil to the site, and um, and we met Mazahim there. Yeah, he was. Um, but I think, yeah, yeah, he was still very shocked. Yeah. What was it like for you, well, for you, all of you, in you, Eleanor and Louise, you went together, but Mariam as well, when you visited the site, what was it like to visit this place? You have the sense of fear because the the war was still happening. And, um, and I remember when we were driving, there was this horse that was suddenly just from nowhere was just racing down the road. And then you're just like, oh my God, where, where's that horse coming from? What's happening? And um, and then slowly going through all these checkpoints. And so when I got there, I didn't really know what to expect because it was just desolate. Um, yeah, so that there was, there was a surrealness of that, I think. I've been working before in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, but it was, I, I arrived in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban at the time. What was very different here was that 
the war was still going on. Uh, and I felt that particularly strongly when we visited uh, Nabi Yunis because mm. uh, as we were standing over the, the, the site, uh, on the site of Nabi Yunis, we could see the shelling and bombing going on in the old city. Uh, at that stage, uh, uh, the uh, the Hadba minaret was still standing and so on, but you were basically seeing an old city progressively being destroyed from a distance, but not so far distance. <laughs> that was very impressive, I felt. Um, what was also very impressive um, and very sad was to see um, so many people from the area on the move, IDPs. Uh, the, the first time when I begin to go to, to the liberated areas, it was still winter and quite cold. And um, you would see these families, uh, you know, on, on, on the road, on the move with nothing. Uh, I too, Louise, have very vivid memories of standing on the top, watching the bombs fall and thinking about the people dying and fleeing. Unlike the two of you, I'd known Nimrud before and I, as a physical place, I had very happy memories of it, though it had been 14, no gosh, 15, 16 years since I'd set foot in there and my memories were fading. I mean, actually, I have to say that Leila and Saad and I had the best time when we were on site. We were doing lots of really nerdy details, analytical work. <laughs> and I, it was surprisingly reassuring, actually, because the media coverage had been apocalyptic. And in fact, the barrel bombs that Mariam described earlier were, had been targeted on a very specific part of the palace, which where sculptural remains were still standing. And they had bulldozed the, the um, earthen core of the ziggurat. But most of the rest of what we saw on the site was aftershock or the, the secondary effects from the blast with reconstructed panels that had been sort of stuck back on the walls in, in the 1960s and 70s had fallen off again. Um, and mud brick reconstructions again from the 60s and 70s had crumbled. But I can remember standing in the, um, the, uh, the palace of the god Nabu, the god of wisdom, a few hundred uh, meters away from the, the epicenter of the blast and realizing that actually it was it was in surprisingly good nick and that there hadn't been looting on the site apart from those two very specific places and that a lot of the most of the site was untouched mm. and that what what we were seeing was um, fixable with a lot of work but it was fixable so I, I felt quite optimistic actually after the end of that um, that visit and it was helpful then to be able to feed that in not only to Louise's work but from another program that was setting up in the Smithsonian as well. It's an interesting point you make Louise and, and Eleanor that obviously there was was conflict going on around this site. Did all of you feel like there was a question to be answered there about why make a program about Nimrud? Why why prioritize this work at the time? Did did anybody ever challenge you about that? That why are you focusing on ruins when there are still you know living people who are displaced or um, there are bombs falling nearby? Well, for me that was an easy answer. That's because my Iraqi colleagues wanted me there. 
Well, from from my perspective, it was maybe a little bit more complicated because indeed within within the UN family, uh, there are uh, a number of purely humanitarian organizations, uh, the UNHCR, WFP, really focusing on bringing you know immediate relief uh, to people affected by by the conflict. And I remember we had to. Uh, struggle which we were struggling a little bit to get access actually to uh, to to the liberated areas because we would be facing this question i mean why i mean is this the right moment to go and and visit uh, uh, um, archaeological sites <laughs> when we're in the middle of a war um, and and of course i can i can understand that question but the thing is if if we were not able to go there and to put in place some first immediate measures of of protection for example we 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 did the fencing around Nimrud to avoid any further looting of the site things like that it's quite important to carry out these measures as as early as possible then i think there's another element to this um from as much we were faced with that kind of questioning resistance from maybe our own UN colleagues from other agencies and security and so on, uh, as much for um, the Iraqi people and particularly the people living in, in, uh, in the areas which uh, had been occupied or were still under occupation by Daesh, there was no questioning at all because they understood and had, had, had lived through, were living through the fact that this, the deliberate destruction of cultural heritage by Daesh had profoundly a human dimension. Again, it was uh, an element of terror of the people, an element of persecution. Um, so, so for them, the, the, there was no doubt that uh, Taking care of cultural heritage was, in fact, also taking care of people. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess there's a way of answering that question, which is like, well, why did Daesh decide that they would prioritize inflicting this destruction on that site? Eleanor, could you put the 2015 attack on these remains into context? Because they are far from the first people who have attacked the fabric of the city, are they? No. <laughs> So uh, Nimrud functioned as an imperial capital of the Assyrian Empire from the early 9th century BC until um, 612 BC when it was um, destroyed by a coalition of the Medes and the Babylonians who were sick of the abuse that um, the Assyrian uh, occupiers um, were inflicting on them. So that was its first destruction and it was more or less abandoned at that point and there were people squatting in the ruins for several centuries after that. British and French explorers from the 1840s onwards digging up and taking artefacts to the west to move to the Louvre and to the British Museum. And that was a point that Iraq didn't yet exist and the area around Mosul belonged to the Ottoman Empire, and they had permission from the Ottomans to do that. And the Ottomans weren't terribly interested at that point in collecting artifacts for their own museums. And it was a time before scientific stratigraphic excavation. It was a time of collecting things for imperial centers. And then after those slightly more formal interventions, there are various more entrepreneurial um, interventions. So there was a, a Swiss entrepreneur who um, 
went to the site and dug up large artifacts to, for sale to museums all over the world. And at this point, the um, very um, Christian um, sensibilities in particularly in North America and Western Europe meant that any artifacts that had anything to do with the Old Testament, so Nineveh, Jonah, as in Jonah and the whale, um, all were very exciting uh, to, to people. So private and public collections wanted these. And there wasn't yet a sense of the ethics of ownership of heritage, or at least as, as well formulated as, as we have now. And then the site was really left for uh, several uh, decades until a, a British archaeologist, Max Mallowan, who was married to Agatha Christie, chose to revisit the early British explorations of the site, really 100 years later from those first digs. And by this point, Iraq was its own independent state, had freed itself from British um, rule, um, but not entirely. So the British still had the rights to um, export archaeological artifacts. They weren't allowed to sell them, so Malawan would give them as gifts to museums in exchange for donations to fund the dig. And this continued until the early 60s when Iraqi archaeological uh, laws changed and the export of all antiquities stopped, at which point Malawan really disengaged from the site because he could no longer share out his um, his finds. But that led, therefore, to him giving out particularly small artefacts made of ivory to collections all over the world. And then there were other dispersals within Iraq when um, Iraqi authorities decided that artefacts weren't safe on site, not necessarily from looting, but from weather. So by the time that Daesh arrived on site, an awful lot of stuff had already dispersed. And one of the pieces of work I was doing was just mapping these these dispersals, both the disappearances from on site, but also where artifacts ended up. So in some ways, my initial reaction to Daesh's destruction was that they were in lots of ways rever reverting the site to the way it had been in 612 BC. But therefore, from an Iraqi point of view, because of all of these dispersals from the site before Daesh, what remained there, although not very much in visual terms, was even more precious because that was all that was left. So this was the kind of really the last straw in a whole series of, of pillagings and destructions. It's interesting, isn't it? Because whilst destruction is obviously a bad thing, <laughs> Reconstruction isn't necessarily innocent either, you know, as in what we choose to retrieve from a site like Nimrud, for example, and where we choose to take it, who's allowed to see that stuff, where we put it. That's not something which is neutral, is it? Oh, um, absolutely not. And so for starters, Malawan was particularly interested in this, this early first millennium BC period and told his team just to dig through and ignore all later archaeological strata. And equally, those early first millennium BC remains sit on probably 4,000 years worth of archaeology underneath. So even on the site, very deliberate choices are made about what to render visible and what to erase. Within Iraq itself, until the 2003 war, um, the Antiquities Authority was very tightly controlled by the state. 
and there were very clear guidelines about the sorts of stories about the past that museums could tell um, that revolved around histories of empire that led up to um, ultimately to Saddam Hussein. So the Assyrian stuff fed in very nicely to this, but there wasn't much room for local history within that. And then, of course, there's this vast majority of uh, materials that Iraqis had no access to at all because they had all left the region long before Iraq was even a state. I suppose this is a question for all of you, but what do you think it is about Nimrud itself that has been such a lightning rod for all of these people? It's the first imperial capital in the world. I mean, the Assyrians themselves set up Nimrud as a celebration of the exploitation of the people around them. And for the British in the 19th century, it mirrored their own imperial ambitions. It was hugely attractive, legitimising site. For people who have any um, association or, or beliefs connected to um, Christianity, Judaism or Islam, then Assyria means something too, because the Assyrians were the great oppressors of the Jewish people, amongst many others. Um, and the Old Testament is a story of resistance against imperial oppression. And the fact of its destruction was what was powerful, this exciting thought that even the most brutal and powerful empires will fall in the end. For, for Daesh, Nimrud were part of a, a bigger plan, so to say, of, of um, deliberate destruction of cultural heritage. You know, I mean, these are kind of highly symbolic sites for the Iraqi people, even if they may not have all the knowledge about these sites. These are the landmarks, uh, uh, sites like Nimrud, uh, in Iraq and, and destroying them deliberately is is really part of terrorizing people. There's something that I remember um, um, one of the, the people that I interviewed when I did a program about Nabi Yunus was the son of an Iraqi archaeologist called Fuad Safar who I think was um, in the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. He was a sort of one of the first sort of Iraqi born archaeologists and um, his son's called Mazen, and he said to me, um, sometimes you might not know about, Iraqis might not know about the histories of these places, but they sometimes would use tells in the distance as a kind of a GPS, like mm -hmm. go take that road and then turn left at the tell or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's like they fundamentally fit into your landscape and so there's that symbolic destruction but it's also leveling what you think you know about your land. With all this in mind how did you start to think about whose voices do we need to hear when we tell the story of Nimrud? Mm. So it was about trying to speak to people who were specialists but then also could talk about a place in a really meaningful way it's like I didn't want an academic history of these places and I also didn't want theories as to why Daesh was doing this I wanted the stories about these places and initially it was how you know, how these these places change in across imagine across generations and across people's imaginations as well and that's why I think it was really important for me to speak to Mazahim because he's sort of Mr. Nimrud, I guess, in lots of ways. You know, everyone that I spoke to, they'd all go back to, to him. And so I I wanted, so not only him to be like the kind of top expert, but to kind of understand a place through someone who 
you know, it was like kind of like a second home. And then when I went to Nimrud, the sort of longer programme, Layla was the other voice, Layla Saleh. And I think that was, you know, the contrast of the two of them, an older man who'd been there kind of at the excitement of discoveries of Nimrud. And then Layla, who is a young woman, how hard is it to be like a woman archaeologist in Iraq right now? I mean, we didn't really go into into those subjects, but those were part of the reasons why I also wanted to speak to her as well, because I wanted to put that voice, um, you know, on air. Louise and Eleanor, I know that you do a lot of thinking about this question in the context of interpreting the site in the heritage sector. It seems like there's some similar questions. And maybe just to finish up, you could tell us a little bit about how you've been working on that, both in Iraq and, and, and elsewhere. I've, I've been uh, save, saving this as a, as a surprise for everybody. Um, two <laughs> weeks ago today, I was back at Nimrud. <gasps> wow! Wow! <laughs> oh, oh, yes! <laughs> That's amazing! <laughs> oh, it was, it was amazing. And I went with uh, colleagues, so my, my colleague, um, uh, Mehia from the uh, Nahrain Network here at UCL, and two really lovely colleagues from the University of Mosul. The new head of the um, of the Faculty of Archaeology there is this amazing young woman uh, called Dr. Yasmin Al-Asadi, and one of her graduate students, Mustafa, who is um, really picking up the work that Muzahim was doing before, and is really, uh, gosh, his knowledge of the site is extraordinary. Louise would be really happy to know that the uh, fence is intact Great. and that the um, really good site guard there who was there to good. meet us. So it's all been cleared of landmines so we could just walk wherever we wanted. And the work that the Smithsonian, the local state board of antiquities and heritage has put in place to kind of document uh, fallen artifacts and to move into a, port a safe porter cabin the stuff that needed to be moved had all been done but what was really heartening was to see the engagement of these young academics um and really i mean it's not yet a, a point where the site can be worked on just in terms of funding and what the local priorities are because there are still about 180,000 families and idp camps around mosul oh um, but there's a huge amount of energy there, a huge sense of what the research agenda should be and how it should connect to supporting local communities and rebuilding archaeological expertise in the region. And so one of the things I'm, well, yeah, my summer projects is to help Yasmin really. I've got some conversations coming up with colleagues here in the UK later in the summer and with the head of the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage um, in Baghdad soon. So yeah, I wanted to end on that. Mm -hmm. um, lovely. It, it lives, it lives, and, um, and not least thanks to the work that, um, that you both have done in supporting Iraqi colleagues and, uh, and on protecting the site. Yeah, it is it is really happening as you say uh, um, and I think it's also very uh, um, you know reassuring because what we we as UNESCO are, uh, are witnessing every time you have heritage at risk uh, because of conflict is that actually the best protection is when local communities uh, 
care about the sites, uh, their sites. So, you know, when you have highly committed professionals, highly committed communities that feel a sense of care, of ownership of their heritage, the heritage surrounding them, that's, that's really the best way to protect it uh, in the longer term. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Jessica Ringrose and Dr Caitlin Regeer about how their research into sexism in the London advertising landscape led to a landmark competition to promote diversity in the women we see. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society in the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Professor Eleanor Robson, Louise Haxthausen and Mariam Marouf, our guests, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.